Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics and CNN... The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. They say authenticity is the coin of the realm in politics. There's hardly a more authentic politician in America than Mayor Marty Walsh of Boston. The son of immigrants uh, came up a hard way, battled a lot of things in his life, became a leader of the labor movement, and then mayor uh, of his city, uh, and one of the leading mayors in America. He came to the Institute of Politics this week. And we talked about his life, his city, and the president. Mayor Walsh, great to be with you. Uh, There's plenty to talk about uh, relative to what's going on in in Boston, around the country right now. But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit about your story, which is is a kind of an extraordinary story. Um, Starting with the fact that you're a first-generation... Yeah, American. Son, son of immigrants. My mother and father came over from Ireland. Uh, my father came over in around 56. My mother came out in 59. They and they were here. from roughly the same area, yeah, right? from, from Galway, Connemara. My mother was from a place called Rasmuck, and my father was a place called Karna. Uh-huh. Yeah, so they, they met out here in, in Boston uh, at the Intercolonial Dance Hall, which was a big popular dance hall back in the day in Boston. And uh, it was it was nice. My, so I, I'm full, full roots all from Ireland. Uh-huh. Yeah. And what is that... Uh, you obviously also grew up in the full immigrant experience. Your yeah. community yeah. Uh, was uh, heavily Irish. Yeah. Um, how does that shape how you look at uh, all the current debate about immigrants? Well, it puts a, it puts a, an understanding on it for me uh, from the immigrant standpoint. You know, the neighborhood I grew up in was uh, Irish, Italian, Polish, Lithuanian, uh, a lot of folks, and then it became Vietnamese and Cape Verdean to some degree, and, and Latino and, and other areas. So our neighborhood has always been where I live and where I grew up has always been Im- immigrants there. Uh, but when, when I hear people talk about you know illegal immigrants, it bothers me because you know the term I, the, I never use that word. I always talk about undocumented immigrants, and when they talk about the struggles Im- the immigrant community has today, those are the same struggles they had in the 50s and 60s, and, and going back to the early 19th century, 1900s. Um, you know. It hasn't changed much. Like like the, str- the you know, struggles you're speaking of. You know, I I know I, I you know my family members that couldn't go back home to their parents' funeral because they would be detained at the border. There wasn't proper immigration reform in the country. This was in the 70s and 80s, and and then and then the United States Congress and Senate dealt with it. They put together some amnesty and, and did some immigration reform. Uh, and, and I think what was happening today and putting putting a, a bad light on immigrants is wrong. I mean, trying to broad brush immigrants as criminals, that's just not true. You go to any city in America, you talk to any mayor, you talk to anybody, immigrants are a part, part of the community, part of the fabric. They, they, in a lot of cases, do the jobs that people won't do. Uh, they keep the economy moving forward. And often, because, you know, the argument that you hear from uh, opponents, uh, uh, from people who take this very strident view on immigration is that these immigrants are taking jobs that yeah. Americans can Unless do. it deals with them. Unless they know an immigrant that might be losing losing their status in the country. They say, wait a second, he's a good guy. And it's kind of, I've heard that story as well. We have a restaurant owner in Boston that was a big, uh, big, big Trump supporter. And, and uh, you know, when the immigrant... Uh, issues came down from the White House, the executive orders, his response was, wait, well, my guy's a good guy. You know, my guy's caught up in this thing, and and I think it's unfair. I mean, I think it's unfair. I think it's in a lot of ways it's bait and switch. What we should be dealing with as as a country, we're not dealing with because every time it seems like this White House uh, goes into uh, protective mode, they talk about immigration uh, when in fact that you know there's a way to deal with immigration. It's to pass comprehensive immigration reform. Building a wall in Mexico and immigration are two very different issues. The the immigrant issue, by the way, isn't just about isn't just about undocumented immigrants. We have DACA. Uh, we have we have temporary protective status. We 
We have immigrants from Haiti and, and Nicaragua that are here, uh, that, that are here for protection. Uh, and I think that, you know, we're, we're looking through the immigrant lenses, through one lens, and the immigrant lens is very complicated. And you look back in history, whether it's under the Reagan administration or the Bush administration, when we had the Cubans coming into America, when we had people from the from South America coming into America, uh, you know, over the border um, through both of those presidencies that were that were accepted. Again, I, I think the issue is a lot bigger than that. And I think to, to solve it, uh, we need immigration reform. Um, the Senate, I guess, tried to attempt doing it the other day, but they clearly didn't do it. Um, so they're not really dealing with the issue properly, in my opinion. What did you learn from watching your family and about sort of the immigrant, the immigrant ethic? Um, my, my father uh, became a laborer um, in the trades. Um, the laborer is the, the the construction that cleans the cleans the job site, cleans the toilets, does all that stuff. My father was worked hard every day of his life. Uh, he went to church a lot of days as an immigrant. Um, raised two boys. Um, you know, certainly uh, worked worked very hard every day. Did stuff in the community as well. Yeah, when, we, we when involved, he was done working. involved with the church, involved with the neighborhood. My mother as well. My mother worked as a housekeeper when she first came to the country. She was a nanny, uh, and then when she had the two two of us, my brother and myself, she stayed home. And then when my brother got to about eighth grade, she went back to work, and, and she was a housekeeper and taking care of older people. So that that work ethic would. Uh, Transpired, transcended over to us, I think, in a lot of ways, um, you know. And, and, and that and, is that is the immigrant work ethic. That is him. And, People and, come to this country to. To, to try and build a better life for themselves. But not only that, you, you keep the cultures and traditions going. And then as I got older, I realized that every nationality did that. And and then as an elected official, as a state representative first, and now as mayor, the importance of that. you know. So as mayor now, uh, I go to celebrations all the time of cultural celebrations. I was at one this weekend, Vietnamese New Year, uh, where you have, again, all immigrants in a room uh, celebrating their traditions and cultures, but also adding to our, our economy, adding to our America, making it so great. And that's what really made, what, what makes America great again. It's keeping that tradition and culture. You know, it's interesting though. Um, you know, and Boston has had its own challenges, and we'll speak speak about that in a minute. But um, why do people find that so threatening? Do you think? I don't think it's across the country. I think it's in certain areas. I think in urban America, when I go to urban cities, I think it's less threatening. I mean, I was in, I've been in Chicago now for a couple of days, and I, I watch what's going on. I see a lot of different nationalities and cultures walking around. Everyone's kind of working together. I was in New York a couple of weeks ago. I went to see Hamilton, the play, but while I was having dinner, uh, Laurie and myself were looking around, seeing different cultures and traditions there as well. And I think that uh, I think in a lot of ways it, it's it's not understanding what that culture is. In some cases, it's forgetting. I mean, generations forget that, you know, most of us in America are just one or two or three generations away from being immigrants ourselves. And I think they, they kind of forgot that. And I think that, you know, I look at Boston as a city that, that is doing incredible, meaning we've approved $20 billion worth of development in the last four years. We've built more housing than almost any other period in the history of our city. Uh, we have Our schools are strong. We, we have more work to do in our schools, which we can talk about. But a lot of great things are happening. And we, we have 20% of our residents are foreign-born, 48% of first generation. So if immigrants were that bad for our economy and so bad for our culture, Boston wouldn't be well, in the renaissance. One of the of this whole immigration discussion is that the strongest resistance to immigration is in the communities where there are the fewest immigrants. Yeah, and I think it's, I think it's sad. I think I think a lot of it too is a lot of it is is just people's making decisions and, and listening to other folks talking. And uh, there's there's a lot of a lot of uh, hate going around right now. And I think that's a, a bad message for us as Americans to be sending around the country. I mean, I think we've been divided country for a long time now, but I think it's even more divided as we as we continue to move into the future. Yeah. When. Uh, uh, when you were a kid, you had uh, an extraordinary challenge of your of your own when you were seven years old. Um, yeah, I had Burkitt's lymphoma, uh, childhood cancer. I was treated in... Uh at 1974, I treated the Jimmy Fund, the Dana Farber, and Children's Hospital. And at the time, that the treatment was exploratory, uh, I had radiation, chemotherapy, and a whole. Your uh, folks were told that you you had just a couple of months. Yeah, to a couple live. months to live, and, and and they said there's two options: one is to go for this treatment and try this experimental treatment, or two, take me back to see my grandparents and stuff back in Ireland. And my mother and father chose uh, the first the first route of action to to try the medicine. And um, you know, I thank God they did. Yeah, but it was a it was a you spent. 
Yeah, it was four, year, four years, four roughly. Years uh, uh, yeah, I was in the, ho- in the hospital large amounts of time. I had surgery. They opened me up, exploratory surgery. And then I had all the things you have for that treatment. And at the time, I want to say it was 30% survival rate for that type of cancer. Uh, today, it's 90%. And, and you know, uh, obviously. Uh, did you know then? Did you realize? No, I didn't know. I was seven. So I didn't really know what was going on. Um, you know, I, I know I was in the hospital a lot. I could pretty much do the, do- the job of the doctors. I mean, I, I know too much about bone marrows and spinal taps and things like that and IVs and things like that. But, uh, you know, I think at seven, you don't really realize it. I think they kind of, you know, kept it from me a little bit. We had a lot of visitors. And I remember one Thanksgiving going home for the day, just in house was full of people, and, and then coming back to the hospital that night. Um, but, you know, I'm fortunate. I'm blessed. I mean, I think, you know, uh, my mother would say it's the medicine and the prayers and miracles. Uh, and, and she'll give a lot of uh, a lot of credit to my faith, to our faith that, that pulled me through that. And I, I don't disagree with her. How did that uh, shape you? I think at the time it didn't actually shape me, but as I but go, when you look, uh, yeah, as it, yeah, it definitely shaped me as a, as a fighter and and overcoming obstacles. I think that you can realize that you know you have an opportunity here. For me, I guess you can argue it's my first second chance I got in life um, that that I had. You know, don't realize it till later in life, but you know, uh, it could have gotten very different. And, and you know, uh, you know, obviously I, I could have passed from it, uh, and I wouldn't have had the the opportunities that I have today. And, uh, and hopefully, during my time as elected official, changed the course of 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 what we've had. I mean, when I was a, a rep uh, in 1997, I voted against the death penalty. It was a it was a tie vote. We defeated it, kept it off the ballot. And in 2004, I supported gay marriage in Massachusetts, and and I was proud of that. And I think that you know you look back on some of the things that different different turning points in people's lives. If it didn't happen, what happens to, to in, in the future? Uh, well, you, since you brought it up, I was going to uh, bring this up later. Those those two votes probably were not terribly popular. Uh, no, the first in your, one was, in your neighborhood. No, the the, the the death penalty was a bad one because at the time a young boy had been killed right before that, um, and it was uh, high profile. And the governor was Republican at the time; he was for the death penalty. The Senate was for it as well. Uh, in the House of Representatives, we had a vote in, in, in enactment of the bill, uh, and it was eighty-one seventy-nine to support the death penalty. Went over to the Senate, and um, so at, the, at that moment, I thought to myself, well, I voted against the death penalty after a lot of debate in my head. It was my first real vote as a legislator. I was in office literally two and a half months when this happened. Um, but I said, okay, it passed, but the heat was off because this, it's going to come back and, and pass here. And, you know, I, I did everything I could to defeat it. And when it came back to the House after the Senate, uh, one of the members switched his vote from a yes to a no, and it was a tie, which which defeated the bill. Um, and at the time, it was a tough. It was tough because people were angry. I mean, I mean, they kept talking about this little boy Jeffrey Curley who had passed. Um, since then, his dad has switched position on the death penalty, but it was a tough situation. Very savage uh, murder of this little boy, and, and you know it was tough. It was. It was um, you probably had a, uh, more than your share of police officers in your in your district. Yeah, there was a lot of police, and, and it was just not just the police. It was almost like the. In some ways, it's a lot like the same folks that are angry about immigration. They they wanted the death penalty vote and. Uh, it was it was a tough vote in, in a lot of cases. A lot of reps and, and a lot of reps got 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 threatened. Uh, the Speaker of the House had that police security, and the gentleman who switched his vote had to get security as well. So it was a tough vote. And it, how, how did how did your uh, experience, having gone through cancer as a child, how did that impact on your thinking about those kinds of votes? It didn't. It didn't really have a lot. But what what happened was for me, it was kind of it was my first real challenge as a legislator. In realizing when you're running for office and first time running, you know, you can support whatever you want to say and you, you're going to do this and do this and do that. And, and now front and center is probably one of the biggest votes I'll ever take as a legislator and, and, and really not understanding during the campaign for mayor saying I would probably support a bill that 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 would bring the death penalty for, for the loss of an officer, police officer or, or some type of official. But now you really have to sit down and think about it. And I, I talk to hundreds of people, and I, I literally switch my mind every day. I'd get a compelling story why we should have the death penalty, and I'd, I'd say, okay, this, this I'm leaning towards this. And then I'd get a story the next day about how it doesn't work, and, and, and it doesn't work. I'd change my mind again. And it really made me take a good look inside, reflect on myself. So subconsciously, you know, dealing with cancer and maybe addiction, um, made me have a clearer brain a clearer mind on how to come up with the issue but it was it was uh after that it was easier to make difficult decisions yeah i guess one of my questions would be um if you face the things that you've faced and i want to talk about addiction in a second if you face the things you've faced uh you've probably faced worse things than having to cast a tough vote 
in the legislature make a hard decision. Yeah, and when you're battling, when you're battling, uh, whether it's alcoholism or depression, and, and there's moments in your life that you just, you just have no place to turn, and you, you kind of shelter into this world that you, you, you don't think anyone cares about you, and, and you don't know what to do, and you can't get out of it, and you keep making the same wrong decisions over and over and over again. And I think once you once you deal with the issue of addiction, anyone who's listening tonight, uh, if you're struggling with addiction, you know, go for help. Ask ask for help because it does get better. And, and you realize that, you know, it's probably the biggest decision that you're going to make in your life getting into recovery. And it will put your life on a path that's second to none um, and, and be able to deal with a day at a time. And, and that's one thing that's helped me in my life, in my career and as a person dealing with it's a day at a time i can't do anything about tomorrow yesterday's gone i can only focus on today and i think that 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 those challenges that helped me through the mayor's race running for mayor in 2013 that helped me through some of these big decisions you had to make it helps you through seeing a bad story about you in the newspaper it helps you through complications in your your private life so living your life that way i think that strengthens you and on top of the cancer situation same as cancer i was seven so i don't remember the treatment but you can't wake up one day and be diagnosed with cancer and the next day it's gone so there's a process of treatment that you have to go through and again it's a day at a time process yeah. and you hope at the end of the day at the end of that that treatment or that time that your life is back on track and, and the struggle that you had before that might not have seemed as bad because that seems you know to me just my observation after a few years in politics is that um, so often politicians uh, are looking down the road, down yeah. to the next election, yeah. down to the next office. And uh, it makes making hard decisions really, really tough yeah. because you're trying to calculate, well, how's this going to affect me next election yeah. or, or, or down the road? And it's one of the reasons why it's hard to get things done sometimes. I did that. Uh, I got elected in 97. Um, in 98, there, might have, there was a story in the paper about who's going to run. This is uh, to the legislature. Yeah, mm-hmm. legislature. There's a story in 1998, you know, I was in the paper, I might run for city council. And then there's another story, I might run for Congress, and I might run for Senate, and I might run for this, and I might run for that. And and a friend of mine, uh, this guy Danny, Danny Ryan from Savin Hill, an, old, an older guy, said to me, uh, I know you want to be somewhere else, but why don't you just be the best rep you can be? Uh, and when he said that to me, it, it, the light went off. And I realized that in order for me to get to my next stop, whatever that might be down the road, I didn't know what it was going to be. Just do the best job I can possibly do that I'm in. And I was a state representative in the legislature. And for 16 years, I just did that job. And, and I did it to the best of my ability. And no opportunity presented itself that I that I was excited about until the mayor of Boston, when he when the mayor announced he wasn't running again, I was ready to go for that seat. Yeah. And if I hadn't listened to this advice of this man, who was just a political guy from the neighborhood that just said it was common sense, easy line, throwaway line he gave me, uh, I realized, wow, he's absolutely right. And, and for 16 years, I just did my job. And, and you focus on the issues that you care about, and you, you have very difficult votes. In that time, I had you know votes on taxes and other things that we had to deal with. But you, you get through it, and you realize that you know I didn't vote for taxes for the sake of raising taxes. I wrote, re- voted for taxes because we had a deficit in the budget, and we one of the tax votes I did was for infrastructure money. So every time I took a vote on raising taxes, and I did it three times, it was it was it was to offset a hole that was happening. And I think that that's some you listen to advice too along the way, and I think it's important uh, as an elected official you can never stop listening to somebody you always have to listen because if you think you know it all and i've seen it too much i see it's all over washington today where people know it all if they know it all, you just they can't and that's part of the problem with them getting to an understanding in washington because everyone thinks they know it all and they really don't and, then, and a lot of the money a lot of people only listen to their constituents and you really have to listen to your constituents you might vote against your constituency once in a while um and and, and when i say that's okay it's okay if you have a if you have a good rationale for doing it you uh politics was not uh, too far away from you when you were a kid either your no. your your you had your relatives were deeply involved in the labor movement yeah. uh politics you know boston's a little like chicago so you know very poli- much like it yeah politics is you know every every kid grows up and they know two things they know their ward and they know their parish yeah. here uh so uh my, so wards, did you, my wards 13 and my parish is St. Margaret. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So do you uh, did you know early on, yeah, this is something I might want to Oh, yeah, I absolutely did. I had it in my blood. You know, my father, I think one of the first rides I went to, my father took me to, I think it was a mayoral, mayoral race. And, and um, in Boston, it was 
Kevin White was the city mayor and Joe Timothy was running against him. And mm-hmm. uh, I forget, something happened with Kevin White and the, the labor movement. They were upset with him. So we were with Timothy. And I remember it was about seven or eight holding a sign uh, at a rally. And then my Uncle Pat um, ran for the business manager's job for the labor's union. And his he, his name was on a sticker. And he was, you know, he was the guy that he was my godfather. And I loved him. And, and seeing his name on a sticker, I was, that kind of sparked it for me. Uh, and then as, as time went on, I got involved in campaigns all over the place. I was always involved in the campaign. The candidates I went with usually lost, but I, I believed in them, uh, which is fine because you learn more in a loss than you do in a victory. Uh, and, and, and when the time came for me to run for state representative, um, I knew that I wanted it. Um, I had been sober now uh, yeah. almost two years. Well, let me ask or, you about that because I know you went to, you went to college. You dropped out of college. Yeah. You worked as a laborer. You got involved uh you you took a job with the union, yep. uh, and then you you sunk into a big black hole. Yeah, I, I took a job with the I was a laborer in the field, and then went to work in the office. And and, uh, and um, during that time, always willing, always wanting to go back to college. I, I did about a year and a half in college, and uh, never quite could get back in there. And, and what was happening was I was I was out there uh, having a good time, partying at night, and going to. Going to going to work on the day and being involved in the community and coaching and all that stuff, trying to keep that front up and this front up, and, and the drinking went from being fun to churning, and I was finding myself drinking, you know, almost every night with different groups of people, and um, my life is starting to spiral out of control at this particular moment, and um, you know, I saw it, not everyone around me saw it per se, and uh, it took me. Did to anybody my, see? Did anybody say, "Hey, hey, man"? People I work with, people I work with, brought it brought it to my attention. You know, they would. A couple of people I work with would throw an AA book on my desk every now and then. I'd see the book there, and um, so it was. I, I just knew. And I, what did you think when you saw the book there? I laughed it off, but I knew inside there was. As time went on, it, there was more and more serious things happening to me, and more and more problems that were I was was encountering. And, and again, as I said earlier, it's an inside game, and and, and really. Outside, I was smiling and I was involved and active in, in the community and active in different campaigns. But inside, I was hurting, and I knew that that my life was uh, was spiraling out of control. And um, I ended up going to detox um, just to get the get the pressure off me, not to stop drinking, but to to get the pressure off me to try and tell tell everyone around me, all right, I'm in detox, I'm going to mm-hmm. be good. And and the first night I was there. Um, uh, People came in. They were talking about their experience through alcoholism and, and recovery, and and uh, I got hope. Um, I was there for a week. I got out of there. I started to go to meetings, uh, and st- I, went, I was seeing a counselor at the time because I was, you know, and my life got better. Um, and my life got really better. And, and, and you know, I wasn't blacking out. I wasn't doing things. I wasn't hurting people. You actually, almost you were sort of chance involved in a shooting at one yeah that was way back in the day wrong place wrong time i was 22 years old it shouldn't have been where i was it was late night out drinking at night and Mm -hmm. a bunch of us there and a fight happened between different group of people we happened to be at the wrong place the wrong time but even that wasn't an eye open at three o'clock in the morning on the street there's no reason there's nothing good happens at three o'clock in the morning (laughs) Uh, but um got into recovery and and you know and my life just everything started to fall in place for me and things got clearer Uh, when i say clearer i mean my decisions were better. I was I was able to I was able to be a better coach. I was able to be a better son. I was able to be a better employee. I was able to be 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 responsible and showing up, and things got really good for me. A lot. Of you it was interesting to me that you said you went because you wanted to basically re- relieve the pressure of people telling you that yeah. you uh, that that often happens. It doesn't really work unless you're unless you're willing to open yourself yeah. up to the possibility of getting better. What I what I what happened for me, and this is a, this is a saying people say in recovery, uh, the grace of God into my life, um, and, and there was a moment of clarity, and that moment of clarity was the exact right time for me. Um, and I'm sure there are other people that were sitting next to me, in front of me, behind me in that same detox that probably died, uh, that didn't get the same message I did that night, and uh, you know, it turned it, my life got turned around because of that. You still. Uh, do you still go to meetings? Yeah, not as many as I'd like to, but I still go. Yeah, you have to go because it, it keeps me grounded and it keeps keeps me focused on what what's important. And you also famously uh, have shared your cell phone number with people who are dealing with addiction, dealing with alcoholism. Yeah. Uh, uh, it's been written that it it, it chagrins yeah. your aides sometimes because you'll have to leave a meeting. 
to take a call from somebody yeah, who needs pe- help. Everyone wants me to change my number, and, and you know, a lot of people have the number, and uh, but it's important not to miss the call, whatever call it might be. Um, somebody might be looking for help or text, you know, somebody from the past, or even when I if I go to a meeting, I give my number to somebody at the meeting. I give my cell phone. Um, and, you know, right after I got elected mayor of Boston, I gave my number to a person at the meeting. He called me up a couple of days later and just talked to me and didn't realize. And then, like, f- like five days later, he goes, oh, my God. <laughs> like, he had no idea what my role was, my job was. But it's too important. To, I, I just don't want to miss that call. I mean, a lot of people have the number. And you're not only someone on the other end of the phone for individuals who need help who you've run across, but you're also the mayor and you're dealing with issues of drugs and and, and addiction yeah. on, on a policy level. How have those become more complicated these days because of the opioid situation? I think because people think I have the answers to it, and it's not that simple. I mean, as a mayor, uh, you know, we created the Office of Recovery Services in Boston, and, and we're able to do some good things in the city of Boston, but the opioid crisis we have is, is a nationwide killer. Um, and, and you know it's 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 difficult to, to I don't have all the answers and I think that nobody has the answers I mean it's a complicated situation uh, I'm reading the book Dreamland right now um, mm-hmm. that is incredible incredible insight into the whole world of addiction from from the drugs coming from another country from Mexico to the painkillers produced here in the United States of America to addiction in the streets and how law enforcement deals with it I mean it's it's not a simple solution uh, and I think that that, you know, when I'm talking to a parent or talking to somebody in recovery uh, that's in, in the grips of addiction, I mean, I know how to talk to that individual person. And I think that, um, you know, it's very, it's very complicated. It's a very complicated issue. Um, you know, the, the federal government, um, the Obama administration um, was really the first administration to start to deal with this issue. Uh, during the presidential campaign, one positive light during that whole campaign two years ago, three years ago, was that almost every candidate, Republican, Democrat, uniformly across the board, talked about addiction openly as far as an issue to tackle. Um, I think. Yeah, but th- what's happened? Not not a lot. I think the federal government needs to have more of a stake in this, and this goes back 10, 15 years. I don't think the fe- you can't tell the, the federal government can't tell us how to do it, but they need to create more funding opportunities and really figure out how to how to how to deal with the issue. And I think also clamping down on the board is the one place I'll say a lot of drugs coming into the country, but that's one step. On the other step, we have a lot of legal drugs exactly. in our own country. Well, the the opioids we, are, are that, you know, that we have to clamp down on. And, and I, I still don't think that anyone, I don't think that the, the, the pharmaceutical industry has learned their lesson. I just don't think they have. And I think my concern now is they're trying to come up with drugs to block the craving. So what they're doing is creating another industry um, to, 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 to combat addiction. It can't just be a drug. You take a drug to stop addiction. There has to be more to it. You, uh, you, you talked before about uh, some of the tough votes uh, that you cast in the legislature, and you mentioned the vote for gay marriage. That was a huge... Massachusetts was sort of ahead of the country yeah. on that. Proud of that. And, Proud of that vote. Yeah. But, it, but I'm sure that, too, was a controversial vote. It, uh, you uh, you know, back at, in the Saint Margaret. Yeah, no, it, it was controversial. I mean, I mean, a lot of people weren't sure exactly what happened. Was the U.S. Massachusetts Supreme Court um, created that marriage equality is the law of Massachusetts, and and there was a move to define a marriage between a man and a woman, and that's really what the vote was. Uh, it was a constitutional convention. We had two successive constitutional conventions, so it got really personal, and it got it was, you know the eyes of the world was on Massachusetts really, um, and you know we were out explaining. I was out talking to my constituents at the time uh, whether. It was in you know the different parishes or my senior citizens are talking and some people gave me a lot of grief for the vote but but I think there was at that point you know every, a lot of family members had somebody who was gay and and, and my response would it would, was to them at the time was don't you want everything for both for all of your kids so if you have two a son and a daughter and one's gay one's not don't you want the same for each one you should love them the same and that's kind of um, that's that's where that vote went uh, you know Massachusetts I'm proud of the vote the only thing I'm, I'm not happy about I think we should have gotten there through the through the legislature as far as gay marriage legalization not through the courts and I think we, we should have identified that as as 
as a legislative body before that. But the courts came down, made the ruling, and then other states followed in line with us. And then the U.S. Supreme Court made the law of the land. And you know, you don't hear pushback. There's not. Yeah. There's not. There's not big, it's amazing, isn't it? How fast big, that's there's changed. There's not a big outcry around the world. And I said to my colleagues at the time back in 2004 that vote we're going to vote against it. I said, you know, be careful where you're voting here. You know, this is history, and, and somewhere down the road, you don't want your grandchildren to be asking you where were you on on the side of history, and you're saying I was on the wrong side of history, and, and that that convinced a lot of people to vote uh, for marriage equality in Massachusetts. You spent, as we mentioned earlier, uh, a lot of your life in and around the labor movement. Uh, you uh, rose up in the same uh, uh, union that your family was yeah. uh, active in, and. Uh, I, I want to ask you about sort of the, the, the state of labor and the state of unionism in this country because we've seen a steady decline. Yeah. Well, I, I think that, you know, at least for me speaking, I think when you when you look at the decline in the middle class and the decline in the labor movement, they, ru- they run parallel to each other. And I think that there's been a big drop there. Uh, I think the fact that labor has has lost uh, lost its 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 its. I don't know what the right word. I don't want to say clout, but lots of its appeal. I think it's sad in some ways. Uh, labor has put a lot of people through college. Labor has put paid for a lot of mortgages. Labor has done incredible <coughs> amounts for our country as as a society. I think a couple things. Number one is is being probably made made it possible for you to get the cancer I'm, treatment that you got. absolutely. We had health care back at the time. Uh, I'm I'm the mayor of Boston today because the men and women of the building trades and other unions went out there and and and, and held signs and got dirty for me, meaning that they were out there campaigning for me and doing my thing and they were proud of that fact and I think I showed that I'll come back to your point in a second I think I've shown very clearly that it's okay to be a labor person as a mayor of a major city and see incredible economic gain in a city. Boston is in that position where I think a lot of business people in the beginning might have been concerned about my, my, my myself being the mayor of Boston and now they're saying, oh my God, this guy's have done incredible things and labor, labor we can do it hand in hand. But I think So you're always under scrutiny by oh, people who want to say always. you're tipping the yeah. scale and, in and favor I, and, of, of your that, allies in labor. And that's not the case. And and I think that I think a couple of things the labor movement. I think the labor movement in some cases, not all, but in some, we've lost we've, we've lost our, our desire on organizing. Um, I think that uh, in some cases it's all or nothing, and you can't do that in labor. I think that labor has to look at what business has done and adapted and changed to to, to the, the times. I think some of the labor movement has to do that. I, I think the fact that we're, we're uh, I think we're out there in some big fights, but uh, again, you know, get elected officials help get them elected, uh, and then elected officials forget the fact that labor helped them. I think that r- reminder has to be put there. I think more labor mem- union members need to run for office. I think that you know we're part of a community. I mean, I'm a, I was the president of Labor's Local 223 uh, in Boston. I, I ran for mayor of Boston. I was the head of the building trades in Boston. I ran for Boston. I, I got, I won. I stepped down from those two posts after I won. But on the other side, you know, I, I was on the board of a charter school as well. I was a founding board member of a charter school. So I think there's an opportunity for, for, for labor to rethink what their role in society is. And I think that that's where labor has to go. Uh, I'm concerned about the, the decline in numbers. I'm, I'm, I'm concerned about that that's happening every single day. And I think that, you know, I, I don't see a, a rosy future right now. Uh, in the labor movement. I think we have to do some different things to bring us back. Especially, and you've experienced this in Boston, we live in this gig economy where people don't uh, necessarily work in conventional settings no, anymore. It's not nine to five anymore. I mean, the 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 the, the, the job site used to be nine to five. Uh, you know, it's not a nine to five world anymore. It's a, it's a twenty four seven world. And I think that if labor wants to be relevant, they have to they have to continue to, to push and, and change with the times. And and, and the, not all industry, but some industry. I think that you know you see it in different areas. I, I've seen it in my time. You know, the United States Supreme Court has a has a. A, a vote coming up. Yes, that, I was going to raise you know, that. With that you. That's that's a detrimental to, vote uh, to 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 determine whether uh, public employee unions can for, for the ask, check, yeah. to, to, can uh, demand from employees in their in their um, you know sections uh, union fees for contracts that they negotiate. I look at some of the what ha- what happens if the it, it seems pretty. Likely that the court is going to yeah, rule against happen. that. It's going to happen, and, and I think that there, there's a the unions are going to have to go back to organizing, and, and unions are going to have to start to organize their members. And in organizing their members, it's like a political campaign and explain to individuals why it's important to be part of part of a bigger body of people. And I think that that's what they have to do. They're going to have to. Because it's easy, to it's easy not to 
pay the dues if you get the benefits. Yeah, and and that's going to be it's going to be a whole a whole situation. I'm not sure exactly what the next step is. I know we're preparing it. We're preparing for it last time, or the labor movement was. But I know they're still they filed a brief. I signed on to a brief the other day from Massachusetts. So we'll see what happens. But I think it's unfortunate. I mean, I, I look at. When you look at right-to-work states and some of the unemployment numbers that are there uh, and so high they are and paying paying workers literally half, if less than half, of what other workers make across America, that's not how you raise a family. You can't raise a family on declining revenue. And meanwhile, companies are making record profits. I mean, again, I'm not looking to take away from companies, and this sounds like the typical Democratic response, but you know, it, both can exist together. Well, let me ask you in that, in that uh, context – you're you're in a town with amazing technological know-how. I mean, Boston is a technological hub, innovation yeah. hub of the entire world, and automation uh, is proceeding at this tremendous pace. In fact, we're losing uh, many more jobs to robots and computers than to you know Mexico and China and other uh, countries. Uh, what what is the answer to that from the standpoint of a labor person? I think it's it's education. Uh, it, it goes back to re-educating people in the fields of the future. I think that you know colleges colleges do a pretty good job of that, of staying ahead of the game and trying to make sure that the the young people that they're educating are prepared for the workforce of of the day of that day. And I think that we have to constantly evolve. And I think that for a mayor of Boston, you know, we're starting to look at uh, STEM a lot more than we had in the past. We're going to open the first science new, and technology, yeah, science, technology, and math, engineering and math. We're opening the first new uh, STEM high, high school in Boston uh, that is our first new high school built in 30 years. So we're looking at how do we prepare our young people for the jobs of the future. And, and you know, this is not the first time that an evolution like this has happened in our country. We've gone through different periods and cycles in our country where where technologies come in and taken workers off the off the line, off the manufacturing line. Um, to go back to labor, I don't I don't think that you know labor doesn't have to represent every person either. I mean, it's not like not everybody needs a union or not everyone wants a union. It's their choice, and I think that. But but I think that the answer to that is going to be is it through education. We you have to continue to evolve, and as we evolve as a country, there will always be another industry coming up under the under the Clinton administration. You had the you know you had the the, the kind of the dot com era, uh, and now under the under the Obama administration, that's continued forward. You have this incredible technology that's going on and life sciences that's mm -hmm. happening in the last ten years in America and in, in Boston, and you know it's in, in the tech industry. And how do you how do you stay relevant in that? It comes back to education. You. Uh just returning to your story, uh, so you made this decision to run for mayor. I read somewhere that uh, that this was not a uh, sudden inspiration of yours, that you'd said at a, as a kid, yeah. I'm going to be mayor of, of Boston someday. Why did that job, why did mayor appeal to you? You mentioned that people talked to you about running for Congress yeah. and running for other jobs. Well, I but think growing up in Boston or growing up in a political, any political, I guess you can say any city in America, that's that's pretty political. Um that's the that's the job. I mean, people aspire to that job, and I think that um, you know, uh, you know, some people aspire to be president of the United States of America, and, and at that point, I, I aspire to be mayor of Boston. I just thought it was uh, a great job, and as I got older and understood what the job did more, I, I continue to think it's a great job. You can help, you know so many people you can do so much for your city and and now being a mayor under, under this environment is even more important i think because you're in competition with other cities around america you're in, a, in competition with other cities around the world to, to keep your city relevant and to keep your city competitive and it's almost like sports that you have to continue to keep your city in the spotlight so that you continue to make gains in your city because it's a competitive place i mean when 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 a company whether it's amazon or ge or what have you what it doesn't matter uh when they start talking about moving locations uh, you want to make sure that your city is on that list so that you can continue to grow your city and continue to be relevant in 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 in, in the world i uh mayor daly was a client of mine in chicago yeah. and people used to say when he was very popular here well maybe he could run for governor maybe he could run for the senate maybe he would be in the cabinet yeah. of a democratic president and he was incredulous he would say well why would i do that i got the best job in the world, and the reason he said it was because I can see what I every day I see the problems and I see the impact of what we do. 
And there's no other job right. like that. No, there really isn't. I mean, I mean, when, you, when you're the mayor, you're on the ground floor. Um, you can, you have say in whatever happens in the city in the course of the day. I mean, your job is to to keep the city moving forward, but you're also involved in every aspect of life. And being a mayor of Boston or Chicago, in a lot of ways, you're the center point of the state. Um, whether or New York City or, or New Orleans or wherever it might be, uh, you know, when, when you know when you think about what's ha- when, when people talk about what's going on in Massachusetts, it's often what's happening in Boston. They equate Boston with Massachusetts, yes. and, and so I think that that's part, partly what Mayor Daly was coming from. And also, it's also a tough jump to run from mayor for whatever reason to run from mayor to governor. I think, especially from a big city. How about for president? A, bu- a bunch of your colleagues are looking at that. I think that could happen. I really do, and I think that could happen for a number of reasons. I think in in the last you know dozen years or so mayors have really kind of risen up to be the people that are the doers and i think that uh, i had this conversation with larry a little bit we're talking about you know when people elect a president it's generally somebody from the united states senate or it's somebody from a governor and they talk about the governor has strengths because they have the they have the experience of being the executive and i think that mayors now have that same experience and would challenge particularly today with the issues of immigration is front and center Healthcare is front and center. Job training is front and center. All the issues that that is dealt on a national level, we deal with it every single day in in cities across America. So I, I I would not be surprised to see a serious mayoral candidate in the next presidential election and in the next couple elections to see a, a mayor elected president. And would you and would you be supportive of that? Are you looking for a mayor to support? No, I mean right now I'm waiting to see what happens. But there's been plenty of names thrown around. Yeah, a lot of people from your own state who are thinking. Yeah, this from my own state. There's a couple people thinking of it, and you know. Uh, Mitch Landrews' name's been float, floated out there from New Orleans. Uh, Eric Gossetti from from from, Cal- from LA has been floated out there. Would they be plausible candidates in your mind? They'd be great candidates. I think they, they, they're strong. Uh, they 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 run great cities, and, and their issues not now. Our issues are environmental justice. We're talking about the Paris Climate Accord. Eric Gossetti re- led that lead. lead. Uh, we all signed on. Uh, Mitch Landrews, the head of the Conference of Mayors, and and so I think that there's a, a lot of there's a lot of good people that could be. Uh, good candidates. Do you think that it, it it might be advantageous not to be from Washington these days? I don't know. That kind of I guess that goes back and forth. Uh, it's hard to say. I mean, I, I think that it's unfortunate that um, I know your senator Warren is senator Warren is, of is running, considering so, it. I think, so consider this I carefully she, I before you answer that. No, question. I, I think she can, I don't know. I, I think I think it's it's about timing and it's about where the country is at that particular moment. I think you look back on the past, you know, three presidential, four presidential elections. Bill Clinton was it was a governor of a very small town, uh, small state, and, and won. Um, you know, George Bush uh, was the son of, of mm-hmm. uh, former president and active and in, in governor as well of a bigger bigger state and won. Uh, you know, President Obama. Um, you know, other than I remember that other than people here in Chicago and Illinois, people didn't really know who right. he was. He gave a couple great speeches, and then he in Boston was in one Boston of them. was where he gave one of the great speeches. But people were gave, you in the arena when he gave that? Speech? No, I wasn't. In the arena. I was there the next night, mm-hmm. but but you know, so so he kind of he, so he went on to win the presidency, and then you have this president, and so I think when you look at the last four presidents, there's really no design plan on none of them really fall other than 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 Clinton and and, and Bush being governors. They're very different people, and the pathway to the presidency was very different for all of them. So I don't think that being a Washington person, plus I don't know if there is such a thing as an insider in Washington anymore, because <laughs> it seems like everyone's kind of up in arms now. <laughs> Before, I, I want to talk further about the national scene and some of these issues as they impact on your city. But uh, before I do, one thing that interested me was you followed a legend in the mayor's office. Tom Menino was a a, a giant figure in Boston. Uh, You had been a state rep. You'd been, obviously, you'd been a major figure in the labor movement. Um, But this was an entirely different thing. What were the personal challenges in taking over an office from a guy who'd been there for 20 years and uh, in a town that was used to these larger-than-life mayors? Yeah, I think first going in, you know, excited that I won the race, um, thinking about how do you follow a 20-year incumbent, and very early on realizing that uh, people didn't know any other way of gov- governing except for Mayor Manil's style, which they welcomed a new idea because they weren't used to a new idea. Um, and I think that that made it easier to go in and do do what I wanted to do. I also surrounded myself with young people. 
I mean, I my chief of staff was 27 years old, Dan Coe, who's running for Congress yes. now. Um, you know, he was at the Huffington Post, and, and I knew his dad, and I literally met him for I met him once and talked to him, and I bring dad, him in. Howard Coe, Howard was Coe, a great uh, official in the Obama administration in the health and human and, and also in in Massachusetts, I met him when he was in government in Massachusetts. Uh, so I brought him on. I brought on a, a, a you know a, a CFO that was a dirty something. I brought on a communications director at thirty something. I mean, I surrounded myself with all young people and and we tried new things we tried different ideas and, and, and what about you though personally there were there days when you said what the hell am i doing oh yeah i'd say I'd, I'd, i mentioned this in one of the articles one of the papers in boston wrote an article so the first three months i went home every single night going what did i do to myself I couldn't talk to anyone. Everyone had campaigned for me. Everyone around me was part of the campaign. Everyone around me was invested. So I didn't have anyone to kind of turn to and say, what do you do in this particular situation? And um, around the middle of March, the first year, um, I realized that I got this. And, and I don't know, something just clicked. And I think it was just, I went from being a legislator of 40,000 people to a mayor of 640,000 people. I went from being in the press once in a while to request every single day. I had cameras showing up everywhere. I had to make these decisions. Uh, people coming in and asking me what, what position on this and learning that as mayor, you know, something comes that breaks news and now I have to have an opinion of it. I can't like yeah. take time to process You know, it. I think this is one of the things that um, when you say mayors could be a plausible presidential candidates, I actually think mayor and president are closer in their nature than any other political offices because just like presidents, people know their mayors. Yeah. Their mayors are ubiquitous presence is in their living room. They, uh, they, 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 they know all about you. They know about your life. They yeah. know your personality. Yeah. The kids know you, who you are, what you stand for. Right. Uh, yeah, I know. There's no question about it. And, and, and that is job, that a good thing if you're in that job? I mean, it's just, well, I think it prepares you. I mean, I think that you know, my first day in office as mayor, there was a big ballot question uh, during the mayor's race on casinos, whether or not they're they're going to be allowed in a certain part of the city of Boston. The people voted down. And there's another casino in over in Everett now, which is controversial today. Uh, and my corporation counsel at the time came in and said, "You have to." Well, not my the person who was there said, "You have to make a decision if you're surrounding or host community." For, uh, for for the casino and at the time I had no idea what they were talking about and I'm thinking why why didn't this come out in the transition and I literally have to make a, try and make a decision that day and it's the first day in office and I'm thinking like oh my god if it's like and every day I feel like that uh, and as a legislator you have time to process it you know you have time to say okay yeah. whether it's death penalty or gay marriage or, or taxes plus or, unless you're the deciding vote you got a lot of company. But even then, you have time to think about where you're right. going to land on it. Yeah. As mayor, it's like, okay, what's your position on this? Something breaks today. You know, immigration. When, when Trump did the executive order immigration, I literally walked to my office. It was 3 o'clock. I saw what he had done. I'm looking at it. I got I got somewhat disgusted by his approach. I called a press conference for 3.30. At 3.30, I have every person standing behind me in the Eagle Room, which is next to the mayor's office. That's an immigrant that works for the administration or first generation. We couldn't fit off in the room. And I was condemning uh, Trump's stand on immigration. Um, you can do that as mayor. Um, but you can you can do that as mayor. But some and some mayors uh, got concerned about Trump's announcement because he didn't they didn't know where their constituencies were. So you really have to be close to the people because you have to figure figure out you can't take positions every day against what your constituents want. So I think that as a mayor, you are on the ground. You are on the ground floor. So my first three months. I would go home every night thinking to myself, what did I do? How do I get through this thing? A day at a time. Literally, I was thinking that way. And then March, I realized this is, I got this. And it's still challenging. There's challenging days and moments and periods. But I, I think there there are a lot of comparisons to, to the president and the, the, the mayor's race. Um, right after I got elected, uh, President Obama at the time um, wasn't getting a lot through Congress, I don't believe. And he decided to make a decision to really work through mayors. So one of my first meetings at the White House, it was all new mayors. I was there. Eric Gossetti was there. Uh, Bill de Blasio was there. And the president talked about getting his message through 
through us out to America. Um, and that was a great learning experience for me as a mayor because, you, first of all, you made the connections in the White House that in some cases you, you didn't have to deal with the Congress or the Senate. You just go directly to the, the cabinet people. But also understanding the importance of the issues and learning the thought process of the White House, getting those issues out to America, and actually how relevant every single issue is to your local city and town. Yeah, That's, impo- that's another thought. Well, we've point. seen a number of them uh, during the Bush uh, during the Bush during the Trump uh, year, I guess yeah. it is now. It seems like years, but uh, and some of them have to do with race. Uh, you had this uh, awful uh, confrontation down in Virginia, Charlottesville, yeah. and there was a there was the same kind of rally was scheduled for. For Boston, but you had a a different result there. Yeah, we had forty thousand people came out for that rally in Boston. Um, How many? How many uh, of the about a hundred? Hundred, hundred, I guess, free speech, so-called free speech people came out. Who were basically neo-Nazis. Yeah, they were neo-Nazis. And, and, and uh, you know, we, we did, a, the police department in Boston did uh, I, what I think was an incredible job of keeping people safe that day. And uh, we got some criticism afterwards for not allowing certain reporters into the into the pen area that, where these folks were. But they didn't amplify what they were saying, meaning they, there was no amplification. There was no, no, no. Mm-hmm. Um, um, speakers or microphones there that they, that was on them not on us but it, just the fact that we did it just the fact that this conversation was happening was scary because here we are in Boston we saw what happened the week before in Charlottesville we saw that people you know one person got killed by the car two people crashed in a, in a, in a helicopter two police officials and and we're trying to make sure that we get out of this thing without without any problems without people being hurt um, and I'm proud of the city of Boston. I'm proud of the people that came there that day. Um, you know, we had the we had the women's march earlier in the year, which was which was a very positive march. But this was a little different. Um, and I'm proud. And right after Boston's experience with this, it, it pretty much stopped around the country. Let Let me ask you though, because uh, I remember when you were a kid, Boston was torn apart by race by busing uh, by busing. Uh, yeah. Louise Day Hicks was uh, in her prime then, yeah. uh, big anti-busing activist, and there were ugly, ugly confrontations. There was. I mean, it was all, all based on race. And, and I remember being a kid walking to school. I went to St. Margaret's Grammar School, and I remember walking up. There was a school at the top of the street uh, called the William E. Russell, and the kids were brought there on uh, on school buses with police cars, police motorcycles pulling in. There was no incident there because they were grammar school. But just thinking about how crazy this is, and then seeing it, I was young at the time, but seeing it play out kind of on TV um, and, and, and never seeing... I mean, never. We never really dealt with that in Boston. Meaning, we never dealt with the 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 repercussions of the busing era in our city. I think a lot of people kind of moved out or just ignored it or didn't deal with it. And these issues still have dramatic effects on relations in across America. But I'm just I'm so the, when the president, uh, some would say, dog whistles about these kinds of issues. Um, does it create does it create reverberations in communities? Not necessarily, I don't think in Boston, but but it just shows you his ignorance and and not willing to, you know, he's the leader of of of, of the greatest country in the world, and and not understanding his 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 words and what implications they have. It's it's sad. I mean, it's, it's it doesn't help relations in America. I think does he not understand them, or does he? Not care. I, 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 mean, I, don't, I don't know him enough to say he doesn't understand them. I think he knows everything he does. I think he's smarter than people realize. Let on, and I think that he does it purposely. I think he, I think he's playing to his base, which I think is sad in itself. That we have, you know, thirty-five, forty percent of the people in America that feel the way he does, and it just shows you how divided we are as a country. And I think what we need, what we need in this country, uh, somewhere down the road, hopefully in the next two and a half years, is a uniter. Uh, and how how do you get to that common ground? Because right now we're pretty divided. I mean, when I saw the presidential election. Two years ago, um, you know he won, and and you know he won by obviously getting winning this enough states to get the electoral college, but some of those states he won. Not sure how, what do people really feel in those states? What do they really think in these states? Um, I think the next presidential election will, will tell a lot about who we are as America. The issue of uh, March, uh, I believe March fifth is the date when the uh, when the question of the DACA, uh, the status of the DACA. Uh, recipients is, is supposed to be adjudicated by Congress. It, it, it looks like that might not yeah. happen. What is your concern about uh, your city and your constituents, uh, given that this this could 
the president says he won't extend the deadline. Uh, you could have people yeah, beginning to be. We, we have 23, in Massachusetts, 20, 23,000 DACA recipients in our state. Uh, many of those are in the city of Boston. Um, it's scary because these kids were brought here by their parents. Um, I, I think the scariness is the uncertainty of what's going to happen. No one knows what's going to happen here. I think the the fact that it's sad that Congress, I listened to, the, I watched the, the television and I read the papers, that Congress can't sit down and do the job they're elected to do. Uh, I think it's a, it's a sad statement. We have a lot of people in fear in, in, in across America, and we have kids in fear in Boston. Um, Is there anything you, you would do, you will do to try and shield them? We're going to continue to talk about, I'm supportive of my of our immigrant population, our immigrant community. I was criticized for saying I would open City Hall up as a, as a, as a sanctuary. Uh, I wasn't kidding with that. I was dead serious when I said that. And you're Come, still, you're, you're you still, know, that's still an open offer. Yeah, you know, and I, I hope it doesn't happen. I mean, we're at the, I just think that the Congress has an act, a responsibility to act and, and, and do their job. And I think that, you know, they came up with an agreement that they would they would come up with a resolution so they could keep the country open, keep the budget moving forward. And somebody's reneging on the bill deal. Uh, well, I don't know who's reneging, but they're reneging on the deal. So I, I just think it's sad. And so my job is mayor in that particular well, case. Well, let me just ask you one question. If, if, that, if it came down to that and you actually had uh, these kids uh, at City Hall... Uh, what happens when the ICE agents come and they're, knock on the door? They're not, being, they're not, they're not in. They're not going to be let in. I mean, we're not going to do that. I don't know if they'll do that. I think the fear is that, you know, I, I think that, I don't know if the federal government prom, uh, f- uh, completely funded the the federal government, U.S. Border Protection Agency as well. I mean, I know the budget he just did. I don't think he added new offices in there. So he's talking about a very skeleton crew that he has over there right now to go around the country and pick up 11 million people and send them back. I mean, that's something that couldn't happen. But well, you have 800,000 of these kids, so it's a... Yeah, a, so, so it's, a, it's, a, it's a small boat. But again, I'm not sure. I'm hoping that Congress will come up with some resolution. And, you know, the Democrats got criticized for shutting the government down, which I thought was kind of ironic that the Republicans shut it down at least half a dozen times in the last 10 years, and, and no one gave them credit. No one, no one gave them criticism for shutting the government down. But that's neither here nor there. We had this terrible tragedy in Florida, this massacre uh, in uh, last week, and it brought back once again this issue of guns. And it struck me living in Chicago and in a city that's had more than its share of gun violence that this goes on every day in America. It's most pronounced in these mass murder situations, but uh, we have a gun violence problem in this country. Talk to me about that from the standpoint of a mayor. Well, what happened in Parkland, Florida was horrible. Uh, the mayor from Parkland, Florida was actually born in Boston, so uh, I felt my heart went out to her and into the whole city. It was awful. And, but every day we have a massacre in America's streets. We have roughly 40 people killed every day in America with gun violence, and uh, it's an issue that that, that is just um, it's one that can be can worked on, uh, I don't know if you could say prevent it. I don't think we never can prevent it, but certainly can be reduced, cut down. And I think that, uh, again, it's... What's been your experience in Boston? uh, In in Boston, I mean, Massachusetts has the toughest gun laws in the country. Uh, As a legislator, I voted a couple times. We we don't have assault weapons. They're banned, assault weapon banned. Uh, We were the first state to to outlaw the bump stock, which that really doesn't say much because that wasn't an issue until what happened in Vegas. And bump stock wasn't a hot, no one knew what it meant. No one knew, unless you're a gun owner, no one knew what it was. And um, so what we've done in Boston, we've, we've, We've had these regional conferences around gun violence. The, the thing that the thing that bothers me is the federal government again is not is not involved in this space. You know, President Obama. Um, I was I was at the White House the day that he he signed an executive order with national background checks for three days. I mean, to extend it for three days. And I was in a room full of people that lost loved ones in whether it was Sandy Hook or Columbine or or, or other places in America that we know of. We read about in the paper. It was a very powerful day. Um, in, in, in the National Rifle Association and the lobby was, was all over the president for signing this. This just would give gun dealers the opportunity to, to, to a background check. And after three days, if you didn't ha- if they didn't have it done, you'd still be able to purchase your gun. Um, what people aren't talking about, the day that the president came down, this president, Trump, came down with the executive order on, on immigrants, he also reversed President Obama's background check bill, which was three days. I mean, we're not looking, and as a mayor of Boston, uh, you know, I support people's rights to bear arms. I support their right to, to be able to own. Uh, but what I'm asking for is some accountability here. We have people in America that can go in and buy, buy a gun that have mental illness, or, or an 18-year-old that can go in and buy an assault rifle and, and do this type of damage. 
there's something wrong and also get the get the ammunition to go along with your assault rifle and, and i'm not sure when we're gonna when as a country we're gonna realize this i think that you know we have, we've had two congress people shot in the last 10 years okay gabby giffords and, and scalise and the minute that the, that the republican got shot he came out with oh we don't want to change the law there's something wrong here there's something wrong here and i think that you know i think that the young people are onto something in this country i think if they as they continue to, to, to talk out about this issue and talk out about these are the future gun owners in America, I, I think we, we need something more here. Certainly, it's not happening. We've had this year alone, you know, when Vegas happened, we finally thought something would happen. Then we have Parkland, Florida. Well, Newtown was certainly New, one. Newtown that, was another one we thought something was going to happen. It hasn't happened, so I, I don't know what's going to happen. As a mayor, how often are you in that position where you have to console Parents who have lost a child or a, a lot. I mean, child who've, who's lost a sibling. I mean, we, we had 54 homicides last year in the city of Boston, and the majority of those were by gun. And not all were teenagers, but some were teenagers. And, and you have to go and, and, and sit with the parents, and you have to talk to them about, about you know, why it is that they lost their loved one. And they're looking for answers, and they don't have answers. And, and, and I think that the, that's we have to do something more in this country. Um, you know, in Boston, as I said, we, we've done these what's called regional gun summits. We've had mayors and police chiefs from around New England talk. We've had four of them now, conversations about this. And we're sitting down trying to figure out ways of, of better sharing information. Um, we have the tough, again, the toughest gun law. So our, our numbers are down, but still, we, we've buried, as mayor now, we've, we've buried too many young people. It's I mean, not, not a comfort. The numbers being down isn't no, a comfort. There, no, the- because one, one's too many. One homicide's too many. And, and when you get a kid that's coming out of school and shot next to a school, 17-year-old boy, and he's laying on the sidewalk, and then you have to go to the mother's ho- mother and father's house and explain to them, you know, what happened, that, that your son was shot. This happened to me last year. Uh, we're at a young young guy, young man shot outside outside of a school. I mean, I can tell you many, so I got a call one night for a 16-year-old kid who got called out of his house by two guys. He went out on his bicycle. He got ambushed, got shot in the corner of a street. He's 16 years old. And, and I was there at the scene seeing his bike there, and, and he was he, he was taken away because he, he didn't die instantly. They brought him to the hospital, but he died in the hospital. It just happens too much. And I think that, you know, uh, when, when you think about the, the amount of violence that we have in, in our society because of guns, it's scary. Uh, again, I'm not about taking guns. You don't have to take people's guns away. But in, think about this in America. If I buy a car, I have to register my car so people know it's mine, and I have to get insurance to drive that automobile. But yet, somebody can buy a gun and then dis- disregard the gun. That gun will end up could end up on the streets of Chicago, Boston, or what have you. And there's no there's no repercussions for that. There's something wrong with our society. There's something wrong with our system. Uh, the, the NRA the lobby. We talked earlier on this on this conversation about labor and what labor has to do. And you know, labor used to advocate, or they advocate on behalf of working class people for their for their wages and for their benefits and for all of the working conditions and safety. That's what they were founded to do in the in the early 1900s. That's what they were founded to do. They they stopped. The, the sweatshops and child labor laws came into effect and labor was strong and labor had a good lobby. Let's fast forward. Labor has doesn't have the same type of clout it used to have on Capitol Hill, but the NRA is threatening lawmakers to, to that lawmakers will, 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 will vote with the NRA before they vote with their own constituents. The system is broken. There's something wrong there. There's far too much power. And maybe it's money. Maybe it's power. I'm not sure what it is, but there's far too much power. We're not looking to go to rural America and take your rifles away. We're not looking to go and take guns away that you go hunting with or even protect your home with. What we're looking to do is stop assault weapons that, that are entering into our schools, killing our kids, or entering into into uh, hotels and killing people that are there to see a concert in Las Vegas or or living in the streets of Boston, a young person who should be getting ready for the summer when he can't get ready for the summer because he's gunned down because of the census violence. Let me, let me just, just uh, in closing, I want to return to, uh, to, some, uh, to something, to some themes you've hit here. In that period, those first three months when you were mayor and you were sort of trying to find your sea legs and you felt a little bit lost, uh, did, did you... Did you go to the? Did you go to AA groups during that period? Oh, yeah, Were you looking meet, for meeting, kind of, had no, no, not talking about just going to meetings and, and just kind of getting my like head. I said, down. You've, did you are those moments of vulnerability? 
in one's life? Yeah, I mean, I had no desire to drink. I mean, it was not something that, that was in the top of my head, but you go there to kind of get your head back on and, and listen to somebody tell their story and realizing that you're not as, you know, your situation you're in is, it could be far worse than, than it is. Prayer also helps. I mean, saying a prayer, you know, asking for guidance and, and spirituality during difficult times. And I think that, you know, in a day at a time, I mean, getting through a day at a time, and as that as that process went on every day, it got a little clearer, a little, a little more understanding. And, and also I got a chance to understand what the job was. And, you know, I had a, I had a chief of staff that had never been chief of staff for a mm-hmm. mayor before. So we're, we're learning this together with other folks. But my, 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 the reason I ask you is we've talked a lot here uh, about, uh, not just in this conversation, but often on this podcast about mental illness and the need to acknowledge it oh, as yeah. illness and to encourage people to go and get the help that they need, that there's no shame in in asking for help. There's absolutely no shame in it. And and when somebody who has addiction or mental illness, once they start to go for help, they realize it. It's making that first step. It's putting that hand out, reaching out for help. That's the hardest decision you ever have to make. After you make that first step of reaching out for help, it's it's easy after that. And, And when the help is there for you, you realize that you should have done it maybe beforehand. And I think that if anyone's listening today and you're struggling out there, whether it's alcoholism or addiction or whatever addiction you might have, or it's a mental illness or or whatever or depression or whatever it might be, reach out. Ask somebody for help because I guarantee you it'll get better. I've never heard anyone come back to me and say, I've reached out for help and it's gotten worse. It doesn't get worse. It'll get better before. It'll get better. Can't think of a better note on which to thank you, Mayor Marty Walsh, for being here, for being at the Institute of Politics, which you will uh, tonight, and for, uh, for a lifetime of service. Thank you, sir. It was great to be on today. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files, part of the CNN Podcast Network. For more episodes of The Axe Files, visit cnn.com slash podcast and subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or your favorite app. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.